Hello, I'm Billy Kennedy, and you are very welcome back to the Spotless Podcast. Uh, we've been away for a little while, it's just one of those things we've been busy as a business, but we're going to try and get uh, a couple of uh, new episodes out in the next couple of weeks. And today I'm joined by Tom Nall, and we're going to talk about um, international research and how we carry that out, um, some of the tips and tricks we, we have, and, and that kind of thing. Um, just before we get into the show, I just want a quick reminder that we are um, available on iTunes and many different podcasting services. Uh, so if you would like to give us a listen to, please uh, feel free to do so there. Okay, with that, on with the show. Okay, Tom, how's it going? Yeah, good. Good to be back. How yes, are you? back in the in the podcasting studio. Yeah, it's been a hectic uh, couple of couple of weeks, couple of months, even I'd say. But um, yeah, it's really good to get back in here. Yeah, definitely. I like the uh, so it's had a substantial upgrade since I was last in here. Yes, the new the new studio. <laughs> <laughs> I think this may it may seem a lot more advanced in the uh, ears of the listener than yeah, definitely than it looks to us. Um, okay, cool. So we're going to be talking about international research this week, Tom. Yes, which is um, something near and dear to I guess both of our hearts. We've we've both done quite quite a bit of it sure um, myself more so in the states and one one trip to japan but you've been around around quite a few different places yeah i've been i've been lucky enough to to go all over the place so um i suppose international testing comes under two major categories you have like uh english-speaking work and then non-english-speaking work and uh, i think um a lot of what i'm gonna talk about today focuses on the the non-english speaking stuff because yes, it's a yeah. bit more a few more challenges involved with getting that that stuff right, although there's a lot of planning that goes into all international research. Absolutely, yeah, and it's, uh, I suppose it's worth noting that usually when we um, talk about international research, we're talking about working with partners um, to deliver on a, on, a, on a research project for our own client. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool, excellent. Um, all right, excellent. So, so, why do we actually do international testing, Tom? So, what's the what's the purpose behind it? Uh, well, I suppose there's a there's a number of reasons. First of all, if a if a company is releasing a product uh, in one region but wants it to have sort of a uh, an international reach, there are there are issues such as localization issues that need to be addressed. Some basic thing, maybe a, a good example would be in the UK when you do online shopping, you refer to the place where you where you uh, put all your purchases as the basket, whereas in the US that would be known as the cart. So small uh, localization changes like that, but also also bigger things like, uh, for example, I did some work in Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. and they obviously read from uh, from right to left, whereas we read from left to right. Yes, so indeed, yeah. any, any websites, apps, or or any uh, products with an international reach need to accommodate both reading stuff. Very different, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, and I, I know the same from. Well, you've done work in Japan, and I've done work in Japan, and it's um, very similar type of type of thing where it's not. Um, did, is, is it left to right or right to left in Japan? I can't remember. I think it's I think it's left to right. But yeah. an interesting thing I noticed when I was in Japan just a few weeks ago is uh, generally the the style of of website and app is very different uh, to sort of uh, the Western design. Mm. It's very minimalist in, in Western. It's gone that sort of that Google route of less is more. Yes. Whereas um, even even websites like the uh, the Japanese uh, Yahoo homepage, mm -hmm. absolutely packed with information. Uh, uh, really, what what would be considered from a Western perspective to be overly overly cluttered and busy. You, you know, but, I, I, I sorry, finish that thought. No, yeah, just to say, and, and that's completely normal. That's what they expect. They like the fact that there's there's that much information. It doesn't. Um, 
it, it doesn't bother them at all. Absolutely. I, I read a book years ago. It was by um, Bill Bill Mogridge or Bill Mogridge for his name. He's one of the big guys in in, in uh, UX, and um, he was talking specifically in it about um, areas like Japan and, and why they have such cluttered things. And one of the weird uh, insights he had about it was that. Um, a lot of it was due to the fact that they were on public transport for so long that they actually enjoyed fiddling with like the different controls on a phone and stuff. So they, like, mm. one of the things in, in, in Japan up until relatively recently was they, they really enjoyed having like really complex phones. Right. Um, and, and it took a while for the iPhone to take off there. It was almost a bit too simplistic. Um, and I think it's the same with websites is, is that they kind of, they value having more stuff mm. um, where I think there's more, there's more value here on, on as you say simplicity um, and focusing on specific things so mm. it's a very different kind of thing and it's it's, um, it's something that you have to be aware of and it's, it's also something that our partners help us to understand right? it's, it's, not, it's not an understanding we could have by default absolutely it was and it was the partners uh, that we were working with in Japan that brought that to my attention because the, mm. the original issue I was having was because we were testing a, a, a western design uh, that had been localized for the Japanese market. Yeah. And after four or five participants, I was realizing there's no issues coming up at all. They are just flying <laughs> through this. There's, there's no, nothing holding them up. They're, they're finding all of the, the calls to action and uh, hardly any problems. And the reason was they're used to such complicated designs that when, they, when you show them a Western, um, more minimalist design, uh, yeah. they just breeze straight through it. Yeah, and it, al it almost becomes more of a, a question of... Um overall user experience then rather than just usability testing mm. because it would, it would pass with flying colors a usability test exactly but it may not pass on lots of different aspects of the user experience yeah. um so yes yeah, it's, it's, it's a wider question at that point mm. cool okay so um yeah i mean t talk us through what a, a typical kind of a setup for usability testing would be um internationally um well generally um you'd be approached by uh, a company um that we that would probably want some form of UK-based testing and some and some uh, foreign country testing as yes, well. Yeah. Uh, so often, what we would do is run the UK-based portion of the research first and use that as a way to sort of uh, gauge the kind of issues and sort of anticipate some of the, the things that we'll need to plan for when we take the, that uh, same research to another country. Yeah. So those those kinds of uh, products are very useful projects, rather, um, from, just from a planning point of view. But I suppose what we would do when we, when we take it to another country is, uh, more often than not, we would work with a partner agency, whether that's just for providing usability lab facilities or helping a bit more with moderation, and in the case of um, non-English speaking countries, translation, mm -hmm. uh, they would help with uh, setting up the lab, uh, recruitment of participants, because obviously they would have local knowledge of how best to uh, find those representative users, mm -hmm. uh, and also um, keep you informed, because it's, it's just as important as uh, identifying usability issues or experience issues as it is understanding the the sort of cultural nuances and and, and differences yeah. um, that you might not pick up just from observing a a participant using a, a product absolutely and I know from my own experience it's I really value um, when we can do it having like an end of day session or like a debrief with the moderator yeah um, just to get their perspective of it so um, very typically uh, in a foreign language situation one of us would be there on the ground observing and we would have a simultaneous translator yes translating um, and very often that that translation would be all would also be 
be being streamed to our clients so they could view uh, what was happening as well. Um, and and, and that's, that's perfect for note-taking, and it's perfect for understanding what's happening. But at the same time, um, it, it, it's never, uh, you never get quite the same as what the moderator understands from being in the room as well. Yes, totally. So it, um, it really helps, I think. Yeah. And that's, um, I think we're going we're gonna to talk about that, the sort, of, the sort of things that you really need to consider when you're preparing for this kind of work. And I, and I suppose uh, if we focus on more the, the non-English speaking type of work, mm -hmm. it is all about getting the right moderator and the right translator for that work. You need to be able to completely trust what they're yes, telling yeah. you because it's, it's coming to you secondhand. I mean, you can, often you can see what they're doing, but you mm -hmm. can't hear what, you're say, what they're saying. So, uh, yeah, you're really reliant on those two. And... Um, and uh, yeah, um, <laughs> not to write. Maybe edit that bit. Out. I, lost my train of I, I lose my train of thought all the time on this thing. You should have heard the one I did with John Anthony. I went on a complete ramble about. Uh, can't even remember what now. Uh, okay, so okay, so what's the best preparation we can put in place, kind of before going out and doing? Sure. So um, as I said, uh, getting the right translator and the right uh, moderator is absolutely vital. Yeah. If you're lucky enough to work in, a, in an agency, then the, you'll probably have access to a, a large network of research professionals. You'll be able to go to them for, for recommendations or if you're part of um, uh, like uh, social groups or, or, or on LinkedIn, you can find uh, other researchers that have done similar yeah. work in similar regions and get recommendations from them. Um, you need to make sure that uh, your client, whoever, whoever that may be, provides you with stimulus materials in good time. When it's, uh, when it's a UK-based uh, piece of research, I mean, it's good to have it in advance, but it doesn't really matter so much if crucial. you get it at the last minute because <laughs> you, know, you know how to interpret what, how British participants are uh, interacting with it and interpreting it themselves. Whereas... Um, if a, if a Western or an English developer has worked on a prototype and hastily localized it for a, for a sure. foreign audience, they, they, might have, um, they might have missed something, some sort of cultural nuance that doesn't apply in that country. So getting that stimulus material to the moderation team, they can go over it themselves and almost help cut down some of the, the, the low-hanging fruits and yeah. make some changes even before you get participants in rather than wasting their time on something very simple. Absolutely. I, I remember I, was, I worked on a project a couple of years ago which was relatively low budget, so we did a lot of remote international testing. Mm. And we kind of, uh, because we wanted to get the testing done, even though it was a low budget, we, we took a lot of shortcuts and we ended up doing um, um, in, uh, sessions in English uh, with people who were native French and German speakers, so people that were French and German that could could also speak English, basically, mm. um, and it was it was actually quite quite useful. And we managed to get the testing, good testing done for for a, lo a lot less than you would traveling to the country, although it's not ideal. But um, in that specific example, I remember there was some really funny things that came up. Um, because we didn't work with a partner agency, which would have been caught immediately had we worked with a partner agency. So there was things, it was, it was a sports-related website, and there was things like um, league table, which in English is like you know a, a relatively short phrase, yeah. but in German it, it goes across like three lines. Right, right, okay. <laughs> so it completely broke some of the designs to do that kind of thing. Um, and likewise, I think um, in Spanish a lot of the phrases were actually shorter, so that it, it looked really weird. Um, so those are the type of things that had we received the prototypes 
and uh, in a, further in advance and worked with a partner agency, those things would have been really, really obvious, but because it was, it was last minute, that wasn't yeah. possible. Yeah, definitely. So, so yeah, getting the, getting the stimulus uh, to the partner agency as early as possible is vital. Absolutely. Another thing I would say uh, in the preparation side of things, if you haven't got the luxury of uh, running uh, a, a, a UK side of the research in advance, I would say it would be good to run a pilot session anyway because yes. that way you can send the video to the partner agency. They can uh, observe the, the style, the kinds of questions, even how you're interacting with the prototype and the way you've got your uh, recording tech set up. Yes, and yeah. they, can, they can replicate that so that there's no surprises on the day. So it's worth doing a pilot this side that they can then view yes. to get a feel for it. Definitely. I, I also think it's worth getting them to do a pilot. Yes, I was, I was coming on to that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally agree. So yeah. uh, an, another thing, uh, as, you, as, you, as you just mentioned, um, often because it's taking, the research is taking place in a foreign country and there will be stakeholders from the client side that want to be a part and observe the research, often one of the things they'll want is to be able to remotely uh, have the session streamed. So, and this is a good opportunity for, to get the partner to run a pilot session themselves. First of all, it uh, confirms whether or not they have understood the nature of the research, whether they've watched your pilot session, Indeed, interpreted yeah. the, the task list correctly and, uh, and aren't asking any leading questions or anything <laughs> like that, but also uh, get an idea for what your client will see. Uh, mm. on both the live stream and the recorded sessions. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And it's something, um, I don't know if you're going to talk through it, but it's something that's been on our, my mind and our mind recently is, is trying, to have, uh, trying to unify the re recording and streaming setups across any partner that we work with. Yeah. Um, so usually, so far, we've kind of relied on them and their streaming, streaming setup that they're used to using. Um, but I think more and more we've come around to the idea that we should we should unilaterally kind of say here's the setup that we want you to work with yeah here's how you do it and get them to do that yeah um and the reasons behind that are it's just it's usually with the recording setups that the partners will use we get good quality stuff but it's just not um cohesive so if you want to do clips that involve a clip from germany and a quick clip from and uh, Italy, for example, um, if you're working with two different agencies who are using two different systems, then the, the clips look very disjointed. Yeah. So there's lots of lots of reasons to do that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's any problem at all with asking them to use uh, specific tools or specific mm. software. I mean, it, it's no different from the fact that they're going to be testing something that's foreign to them anyway. Exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, ab absolutely. Where, wherever wherever possible. Uh, and give partner agencies certainly enough time to familiarise themselves with oh, these yeah. tools. But uh, yeah, you should you should definitely be able to make recommendations for how they do it. Absolutely, cool. Um, okay, cool. And then I guess during the research, what would be the kind of the main things you'd be looking at for? Yeah. So once once the research is actually in session, um, I, again, I'm going to come back to the translator because in a way, mm. I think that they have the most important job uh, for non-English speaking sessions anyway. Sure. They are, or they will be, constantly speaking. So they will be translating uh, in real time two sides of a conversation, mm -hmm. so the participant and the, the moderator. They'll also be uh, for the benefit of the, the English-speaking uh, consultant from Spotless, translating any uh, prompts or messages that come up on the screen. They also um, need to let you know if 
participant is doing something for a particularly uh, for a particular cultural reason that you might not understand if they're able to interpret that and also they need to be available to answer mm. the the uh, the spotless researchers questions yes so asking them to to clarify that or is that exactly what they said sometimes you they may not be as aware of what the focus of the research is. Sure. So you need to be able to, at a moment's notice, say, actually, can you go back to what you just said there? That sounded quite important. Okay. So they've got a very busy job. So it's, 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 it's vital exhausting. that you get, the, uh, you get a feel for how the translator works and, if possible, get them involved in that pilot session that we talked about earlier. Yes, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, it's a really tough job. And, um, and I know, I know some, some places they like to swap out the translator um, to give to give them a break, it's, it's, it's often seen as best practice. Um, I I'm cruel. I, I I often prefer to to have the same personality throughout throughout, just because they're more used to yeah. uh, what you want from them, and, and they kind of get a feel over time as to you know those questions that you might end up asking. Yeah. Um, but you know it's understandable. It, it really depends on the cultural context as to whether you have one or two pe- people doing that. Mm. Um, so yeah. I've, um, I've worked with a lot of great translators since I've been mm-hmm. doing this kind of work, but also that means that when you get a bad one, it really stands out. So some of the, some of the examples of, of, uh, of things to look out for is when you're hearing the participant and the moderator have an extended conversation, yeah. and then uh, you sort of look over at the translators and say, well, what are they saying? And he's like, yeah, he doesn't like it. <laughs> so, or like a one-word answer or something. It's yeah, like, can you well, I need elaborate. more detail on that. <laughs> so you need to make sure you're getting the full story. Yeah. It, it, it is. A, I was having a similar conversation with a translator I worked with in Germany recently, mm. and um, he was discussing that it, it, he was really good. But he was discussing that it, it's a really fine balance to work because um, directing directly translating word for word wouldn't actually always get you the meaning of what of what they're trying to convey. Yeah. Um, so for him, it's like I need to digest a sentence or a portion of a sentence and work out what he actually meant by that. Exactly. Um, so it's 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 a constantly it's a job of constantly thinking as well. It's not, it's not just kind of uh, verbatim. Yes. Um, pushing the, across. the best translators for this kind of work have a knowledge of uh, the research methods that you're using, yeah. and therefore can can make sort make sure that they prioritize the bits that are most relevant to you. It is a real uh, impressive skill. Yeah, it's, it's really tough. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. Um, cool. All right. And. I think you, were, you had some stuff here about cultural differences and, and picking those up as well. Was there any specific, specific, specific examples you had around that? Yeah, so... Um, yeah, as, as, as I mentioned, getting like the stimulus materials and, and things like that over to the, to the local moderation team as early, as early as possible is vital. Not only can they help sort of clear up some of the early uh, issues with the prototype that you may not have picked up, picked up on, but they can also uh, highlight... Uh, sensitive issues. So again, I'll give you another example. So um, when I was working in Saudi Arabia, I was in in, uh, Riyadh, the capital. Mm -hmm. Um, I was doing some work for a um, a hotel's website. And one of the hotels that we we tested during the the Saudi sessions used imagery of uh, a beach-based hotel, and it had imagery of like... uh, people in bikinis and by the beach and <laughs> in Saudi Arabia that kind of imagery is actually considered quite offensive and right. it wasn't yeah, yeah. screened out in advance 
So that's an example of something you need to be aware of. I think that's quite an, an extreme example, but you certainly don't want to be in a position where you're making your participants feel uncomfortable uh, or sort of or, or jeopardizing the research because of these things that you haven't done adequate research for in advance. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's also a good idea to, to get a feel for um, just the nature of, of people in that country. And an, another mm -hmm. example, having just come back from Japan, is uh, Japanese people in general are, are quite reserved when they give feedback. They're quite hesitant to criticize because um, of, of fear of causing offense. Sure. Um, but when it comes to trying to get feedback on a prototype, that's not necessarily the best trait to have because you want them to pick it apart. You want yeah, to understand yeah. what the problems are. And I found that like giving them a questionnaire, maybe on a, a like it scale type thing, everything was coming back at around three where they didn't <laughs> want to give an opinion either positive or negative for fear of causing right. offense. So there's, that's, that's something that you need to consider also. Maybe you need, a, need to use the local moderation team and get them to uh, elicit the responses that are, are most necessary because maybe a Western uh, approach won't work. Yeah, and I, I remember uh, from my experience in, J in Japan, um, we actually got them to um, kind of reword questions as well. So, so um, we sent them across a, a moderation guide and there was questions in there about kind of, um, you know, d does, the, does this site do a good job of conveying X and Y information we wanted to find out about? Yeah. And they actually turned it into a completely different question. Um, but actually to get the same result because they were like, well, if you ask them, is someone else doing something okay, they'll say they're doing it okay mm. or they're doing it well. Um, whereas if you, if you start asking them specifics um, about kind of, can you tell me how much this is or, or how much that is, um, they actually have, you, you will see them struggle with it, um, which is also something which we do try and do here in, in the UK as well. But yeah. um, they were very much about avoiding broad questions about like or dislike or, or, or preference. It was all about kind of getting people to do things yeah. and observing whether that was a good experience or not at that point. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what we're getting at here, it's, just, it's not just a case of giving them the, an English version of a, mm. of a study design and saying, here, yeah, just do this in German or in Japanese. It's not that simple. No, never. It's, uh, you, you can't just... You can't just translate a document from one language to another and expect the research to flow in exactly the exactly, same way. Yeah. Cool, excellent, all right. Um, well, correct me if I'm wrong, I, th I think we've covered off a few of the next bits and pieces. Mm. Um, but I guess a, a fun little bit before, before we close out on this is um, any travel tips we have about doing international research or anything like that? Sure, yeah, I mean, it's always, always good uh, to, to learn a few phrases of the country you're visiting, yeah. even if it's just... Uh, please and thank you. It goes it goes a long way to, to show at least you're you're making an effort. Um, try and be aware of uh, of local conventions. I suppose like because uh, you're going to have to meet the moderation team you'll be working with, uh, like shaking hands or in, in Japan I needed to learn sort of sort of bowing conventions and also handing over a business card is a big one. Yeah, handing yeah. over business you have to do it with two hands and similarly when you receive a business card you receive it with mm. two hands. Uh, also, there's the the tradition of uh, of gift giving in Japan. Yes, so when I yeah. met the uh, the partner for the first time, I gave them a gift, some English tea and biscuits. Excellent. <laughs> did you did you get one back or? Uh, they, well, what they did is they they took me out for a traditional Japanese ah, meal. So brilliant. that was nice. <laughs> Excellent. You got the better end of that. I, I think I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and also you're going to be as a as a note taker, but just in general. 
you're going to be using a lot of electronic devices, whether it's your, your laptop or your, your phone for note-taking purposes. Bring a lot of, of power adapters. And one thing I actually learned from you, actually, Billy, was bring a, like an extension uh, yeah. thing so you can plug in like four things into one plug. That's worked but, well for me in the yeah. past, although um, caveat on that, I've been warned against doing that since. Oh, really? Apparently, it's a little bit dangerous but um, because uh. you're putting... Well, apparently, well, look, I'm not, I'm no electrician, but apparently, if it's a different voltage in a mm. different country, um, you're at significantly more risk of a fire hazard doing an extension lead. Oh, I didn't know that, so okay. when, I, when I recommended that you do it, so maybe <laughs> okay, I, I retract that recommendation. It's just yeah, just in case. I, I, I've been doing it for years, but I, you yeah. know, the one time someone else tries it is when it would go wrong. So uh, maybe don't. Um, oh yeah, and and the one thing about learning a couple of phrases, um, I'm going to sound like a complete. Um, hyper nerd explaining this mm. but what I've done in the past actually is I've, I've actually printed off like business card sized um, phrases mm. to bring with me um, with uh, especially if it's like a, a different script like Japanese or, or Chinese or, 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 or um, in Saudi Arabia as well it would be a different style of writing sure um, and I'll have the pr- I'll have that and I'll have like a, a, my variants of like a pronunciation of the phrase so I'll either try and say it and if, if they don't know what the hell I'm talking about I'll just show them the card <laughs> good good one <laughs> and that'll be like um, can you bring me to and I'll have the address of the hotel or the lab mm. or um, I'd like to order and just point at whatever you need to order you know just basic bits and pieces because um, uh, while the standard of English tends to be quite high in lots of places we go to yeah. um, simple things especially with like restaurant staff they may not be as good with English um, so just having things like that is quite useful as well. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing I found really, really useful, especially when it comes to like translating menus and street signs and things mm-hmm. like that, is the uh, Google Translate app. Ah, the simultaneous translation yes, thing. So you can yeah. point a camera at something you're trying to translate. Say you want it to go from, say, Japanese to English. And in real time, it will change the, the Japanese text into English text. Mm, very, very useful. Yeah, excellent. Um, one thing that springs to mind, you haven't covered it in, in your notes here, so I'm going to spring it on you now. Sure. Um, one of the things we've had, we've had to do recently, and we've done on lots of occasions with, with multicolored country studies, is um, comparing and contrasting what happens in different, in different countries. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if you have any, any thoughts on that, and particularly with, with different researchers different working in different countries. Um, you know, do, what do you think is the best way to kind of do that, or what, what, what works well? So I, I think, again, making sure that, you, that you've adequately briefed all partners up front and given them the same briefing. So yes. in this case... Uh, if you're if you're running research in multiple countries, make sure you send them all the same document to work from, the mm-hmm. same uh, video of example moderation to work from, and um, when you give them feedback, make sure you're giving them consistent feedback that will bring them as close to what you're doing in those other regions as possible. That's a really good point. Now, obviously, you you don't want you you need to be a bit careful because you don't want to influence them in the way that you're missing out on all of those cultural uh, differences, which is the reason why you're doing the international research in the first place. But it's just, uh, there's there's certain things you can do to make sure that the data you collect is comparable, even though obviously the data is going to be different in all regions. Absolutely. And I think um, something that's worked really well when when we've done multi-country studies before is that... um, Sorry, something caught in my throat there. Grab a, grab a drink. <laughs> is, um, what's worked well is, is um, especially when people are in different countries at the same time or overlapping, mm. is having um, good constant catch-ups together, uh, even just by email, about any changes that have happened in the study. Yeah. 
Um, so you know, if you're in if you're in Japan, for example, and you've had to change some stuff, um, or you figured out some 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 reasons that things had to change, um, you know, telling whoever is in different countries that, that that has happened, and then you know, together you can make a call of whether that's something you should replicate in all countries, yeah, or yeah, not totally. do uh, oh, that kind of thing. So just yeah, communication, I guess, is the main. Yeah. So yeah, that's a, that's a that's a good uh, that's a good point because when we. I was recently in Japan at the same time you were in Mexico yes, doing yeah, yeah. the same piece of research. Mm. And I remember, um, so one example is, and Richie, one of the other consultants, was in Germany at exactly the same time doing the same piece of research. Mm-hmm. And he discovered only once he got there that one of the platforms we've been testing in all the other regions didn't really exist in that country. Right, it existed, but it wasn't It wasn't used. Or it wasn't, yeah, yeah. It, no, nobody used it. So um, we had to think uh, quite quickly about what we should do. Should we uh, swap it out for a different platform or just uh, miss it out entirely? Yeah. And obviously that affects if you're, if you're looking, in this case it was a benchmarking piece of research and you haven't got data for a particular country, then, you, then it's, it's, it's useless. You can't compare it to anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah these are yeah, some, of the, some of the issues. Also maybe a, a question that goes down well or at least is 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 understood and gives you valuable data in some regions might not um whether it's a, a translation thing or a, or a cultural thing might not be giving you the same type of data that you expected yes. it to so yeah. The, yeah these are things that it's, it's, it's difficult to think of uh examples because often you just sort of deal with them as they come along but yeah. it's, it's always something that you need to be um um considerate of that Although you might be getting excellent data for your region, you also have to consider that you're comparing it to other regions so, as well. So important, especially like, um, you know, especially when multi-country studies come in for for any of our clients, um, they're interested in the comparison. Mm. They might not be totally as interested in the quirks of a specific region, although they will be. Yeah. Um, but it's more important to have comparable data. Yeah. That you can build a, a bigger picture out of. So. Yeah. Exactly. And um, yeah, I think actually there's that. that ties in nicely to something I think I, I missed speaking about earlier, is once the research has been completed, you've seen all your participants, or at least your local moderator has, mm-hmm. make sure you have a, a, a debrief, a face-to-face with that moderator yeah. before you leave, because that's where you, you can pick up all that rich data on cultural differences and, and maybe things that were so subtle uh, that a, a, a foreign observer wouldn't have been able to pick up what the local moderator might have done, maybe even if it's just body language or a facial expression mm-hmm. or um, the way they, they interact with a certain element of the prototype. All of that stuff is, is really valuable. Uh, one of the things I did in Germany recently was I had a, I had a, a short catch-up with them at the end of the testing, mm. but I also had a catch-up with them after I'd written up my results. Mm. Um, and I went through my results with them and I said, okay, is this accurate to what you actually saw in the sessions or yeah. is this just the impression I got? Um, and you know, once or twice, I had to correct me on it, and they were often able to fill out, fill out things more. So it's, um, you know, th- there's value at different points in getting them to check in as well, if if, yeah. if budget allows. Yeah, I've also had, um, I've also asked the the local moderation team to also do uh, like a mini report, maybe just a, a one page word document yeah. of like what they consider to be the big findings that come out. Yep, yep. And it's amazing how even if you've been sat observing all of the sessions and have and have been taking copious notes. How, lots of things that they will have picked up on that you mm. won't have done. And if you go back to the video, uh, it's like, oh, yeah, it was there the it's whole there, time. Yeah, but yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> you just never never picked up on it. 
Cool, cool. Excellent. Um, well, that's it for now on international research. I think, unless you've any ex- extra bits to add. Um, um, and there's probably there's probably a lot I haven't spoken about, but uh, I think that's sort of some of the some of the main things that I find useful to cool. consider. Excellent. Well, we're doing more and more of it re- uh, in the next couple of months. Yeah. So uh, it might be worth having a redux of this in a few months time <laughs> yeah, and, and see that it uh, think, uh, did it all pan out uh, as to plan. You're off to Mexico this time, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, I'm doing a bit of Mexican research soon, and, and who knows? Um, there was a, a year, I think, was it 2000 and I think 2015, hmm. I spent almost two months in the United States. Nice. Um, not in one go, it was like a week here, a week there, but just a huge amount of time over there. Um, so it'll be good to get uh, away from the English-speaking countries <laughs> and more into, I guess, what's, what's Mexico? Latin? or well, uh, They call it Latin, a Latin country, but it's Spanish. Span- I believe it's yeah. Spanish, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, also there's a bit of research coming up in Kuwait as well, isn't there? Oh, wow. So that'll be another... Um, yeah, Arabic-speaking yeah, uh, yeah. piece of research. That would be interesting. Cool. We're, we're, we're very lucky here with Spot as we get to go to all these various different places, yeah, which, is, which is great. great. <laughs> uh, cool. Um, okay, well, we're going to do a, new, a news section. I think, you, have you prepared a few stories? Is that right? Uh, yeah, I've got a few stories here. So, um, um, so recently, I got this off the BBC News this morning. Um, so it was a bit of, about the, uh, the, the big hack that we had, the WannaCry um, sort of ransomware. Ah, uh, the one that took down parts of the NHS. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And uh, the the BBC are doing a bit of a, a retrospective sort of what could have been done mm-hmm. for to to protect businesses and more specifically the NHS from this ki- type of uh, cyber attack. Sure. And uh, yeah, I, I just found it an interesting read because it's it's a, it's a lot more. I mean, it's easy for for somewhere like Spotless, where a relatively small company. Um, it, it, it's easy to sort of roll out software upgrades and um, and everyone's sort of kind of, oh, everyone's very tech savvy, so we all know to sort of keep security updates sure. uh, up to date on our on our various N- machines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, in, a, in, a, in a massive organization like the like the NHS, it's not it's not quite that simple. You can't no, just yeah. roll out an update uh across the whole organization there might be software conflicts which means now you now maybe like an mri machine won't connect yeah, to yeah, a computer yeah. or something like that yeah. it's very bespoke um uh software and hardware probably connected that mean that any any slight change in uh in the software or the opera- operating system that's running it uh um, could mean that it no longer functions properly anymore. So it's yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's something I wasn't even aware of that a lot of these machines have Windows as a base up, even though you never see Windows. Yeah. It is running the code of the machine as such. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and you wouldn't. How would you even think to update that because it's not, it doesn't even have a screen a lot of the time. Mm. So, mm. yeah. So yeah. So it's it's a it's an interesting question. What could have been done uh, to prevent this uh, this this WannaCry hack? Mm. Uh, and and there is no there is no easy solution to it. Yeah, it's it's a tough one, and you know, not to put too fine a point on it as well, but the, you know, a lot of it comes down to budget, hmm. and it's like how much can you spend on on these things? I, I know one of the big problems was a lot of this is um, Windows XP was was still running on a lot of the machines, um, and it's easy for us or anyone to say, well, you you know, what are you doing on that? You should be up on Windows 10 or whatever it is now. Yeah. But the financial investment of trying to upgrade all those machines would be a, a massive undertaking. Um, never mind, kind of. The time it would take to do it, the number of people who would have to be involved. Yeah. So it's, it's it is a it's a huge undertaking for an organisation of that size. Yeah, definitely. And the and the potential for like as I, as I mentioned, like conflicts and and downtime yeah, yeah. for this upgrade to happen, it's just something that an organisation like the NHS can't afford to to waste time doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny. I, I saw a comment um, 
underneath one of these news articles. You know, for my sins, I go down and look at the comments sometimes. Um, <laughs> but it was like, you know, um, you know, well, the NHS can't, can't always afford to do these updates. And mm. someone made a really good point. It's like, well, they can't afford for this to happen either. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yeah. ni- neither reputation-wise nor, indeed, people's lives. Yeah, So <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, I think that would have... Everyone who was affected by this would have, would have learned from it, I think. I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and the example that comes to mind here is, like, uh, the sinking of the Titanic. Yeah. Which... Um, Although it was a massive loss of life at the at the time of the sinking, I think about fifteen hundred people, mm. the the changes to maritime law that occurred as a result of that sinking have uh, undoubtedly saved more lives than were lost on that day. So, and that's a bit of a, a weird example that came to mind. But I mean, it's, sometimes it's, these things have to happen, so you learn from them. It's a sad, it's a sad truth of of the human condition is that we mostly learn by making mistakes. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was um, that was a, an article about the the WannaCry uh, ransomware hack. I've also got one that I just picked up about five minutes ago uh, about uh, fitness trackers. I think I, I talked a bit about fitness trackers uh, last time I did the mm-hmm. podcast. And it's they're, they're a frequent topic on this show for some reason. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. There's, There's lots to talk about when it comes to yeah. fitness trackers. But um, actually, uh, a study has found that they're they're actually very poor at uh, at measuring. Uh, the amount of calories that you burned, yeah, as in yeah. not even not even reliable to around twenty percent. Wow! And uh, I think that's interesting because so I see so many people using them. Uh, so many you know, smartwatches now. People have got like Fitbits. A lot of people, in, even within the office, use that that yeah. kind of tech. And actually, to find out that it's it's actually not that accurate um, is uh, is quite worrying. But also, yeah. um, I, I wonder how much it actually uh, affects their behavior towards mm. these things. Just the fact that you're, you're, you're tracking yourself and um, I suppose as we touched on last time, sort of the gamification mm-hmm. elephant element, not elephant. <laughs> the gamification <laughs> elephant. <laughs> um, is, is that enough to sort of continue to promote the yeah. sort of uh, fitness lifestyle that you've adopted or, or is it really that you need to be collecting really accurate data through these devices for it to have an impact? I suppose if you're on a, say maybe a, like a, a calorie control diet and it's telling yeah. you you've burnt one amount and in fact you've burnt another and you're basing your diet on that, it could be a problem. That's, that's a big issue, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess if, if it is a case that they can't do things as accurately as they say they are doing it, Maybe they should they should just talk in more generalities. So mm. you know you have done a lot less today, or yeah. you've done a lot more today. Well done, rather than saying you have eaten or you've you've walked off twelve hundred calories, yeah, or exactly twelve fifty or whatever it is. You know, mm. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure the eventually the the technology will, will will catch up. I think the article says that even even over the last five years, the ability to to accurately track heart rate yeah. has uh, has improved phenomenally. Mm. Uh, so maybe. Uh, like calories burned will we'll catch up in a similar way, but I suppose, it, it's a bit, I suppose it's it's a bit different because like everybody's everybody's different. How can how can you really determine how? F- mm, I don't know. Yeah, I mean they, they do things like um, uh, is it BMI or your body mass? Yeah. But but even for those, they say look, this is an estimate. Yeah. Um, there's no way we can accurately tell how much of this is muscle as opposed to. Exactly, Non-tissue and it's reliant really. on you providing accurate data in the first place for yeah. it to work off. And you know, everyone burns because of the differences in muscle mass and so forth. Everyone burns things at a different rate. Yeah, you know, you could be you could be uh, two hundred and fifty pounds, 
but hyper fit. Yeah. Um, and you would be burning stuff a lot quicker than you know. So it's 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 a, it's a very tricky one. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that one was interesting as well. And um, so the so the last thing, uh, it's not really a news story, but I, I thought it was worth mentioning anyway. Mm-hmm. As today, at the, as in the the time we're recording, twenty uh, fifth of uh, May twenty seventeen is exactly forty years since the release of the first Star Wars film. 40, wow. <laughs> That's incredible. It's actually incredible. Um, I, f- I think I saw Star Wars when I was seven mm. for the first time. Maybe maybe a little older than that. It was when the special editions came out on VHS. Oh, yeah. And they came into my, my local video shop, and I think I got a number of fines for not returning them. <laughs> <laughs> I think I brought home, yeah, New Hope, and, and had it for yeah, about two I weeks. Think, um, I think when they came out, we must have rented like the Empire Strikes Back like a good three or four times, yeah, like yeah. way more than it would have cost to actually own the VHS. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. I was, I was getting like a fine every week of four fifty or five pound. <laughs> so I should have gone out and bought it. Um, yeah, what a, what a franchise and what what a, what a history. Yeah. And it's, it's only just ramping up again, really. So it's yeah, it's, yeah, because uh, yeah. I think um, I think they've released some new information about the new film today in yes, response yeah. to the anniversary. So. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but it's yeah, it's an exciting time. It's it's a pity <laughs> that they didn't release it um you know twenty four tw- twenty one days earlier. It could have been May the fourth. Yeah, yeah, of course. which would have been a <laughs> May the fourth. I don't you, remember that being a thing until a couple of years ago. May, I, I mean, think it's a recent. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a recent addition <laughs> to the, the lexicon. Yeah, May, yeah. May the fourth be with, yeah, with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I suppose um, I suppose not well, not directly relevant to the stuff we do. It's it's, it's interesting the. The kind of things you read, like uh, science fiction, having an influence on um, the technology we use today. Like, uh, for example, I read, and I've heard it from numerous sources actually, that like the clamshell mobile phones we used to yes. have were directly influenced from Trek. the Star Trek. Yeah, the what were they? The communicators, the communicator type yeah. things, which were a clamshell. I think it's, it's probably fair to say I'm more of a Trekkie, and you're probably more of a. I, I think what's, so. what's the Star Wars fan? A what's the term? A Warsy. <laughs> don't think there is a term. Huh? <laughs> um, yeah, I won't get into the argument, yeah. which does come up every so often that Star yeah. Wars is actually not science fiction; it's fantasy. Uh, okay. But, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, no, but uh, lots of stuff have come from. I think both both franchises have, have influenced lots of things. Mm. Um, I know actually. It's more about Star Wars influencing other sci-fi, but but um, the hyperspace effect in yeah. Star Wars um, it was basically robbed by like every other science fiction movie or, or, or franchise as the way that you would do yeah. high-speed um, travel. And I, I think um, I remember reading something totally non-scientific there a while ago that that the effects that they do in Star Trek and Star Wars for high-speed faster than I travel have actually been like used as examples in actual scientific literature of like well how how would that work if it were real yeah and yeah. it's been it's been useful for them to actually model that type of thing because it got them to think in different ways yeah sure um and I think in like in Dune um which is a, a franchise I love <laughs> Um, they they do hyperspace travel in a different way again, which is about folding space, mm. and that's actually scientifically quite accurate. And I don't I don't know whether that came out before or after they found out that you you know that was like a quite a possible way of doing things. But yeah, that's off on yeah. my sci-fi yeah, tangent. Uh, yeah, d- well, I, I can remember another example when I was studying uh, human computer in- interaction at UCL. Often we'd be shown clips from films like uh, Minority Report, yes, uh, as examples of the way. So, uh, sort of it, internet of things might mm-hmm. work so I think there's one clip that rem- reminds me of when he walks into a shop 
And um, just from his retina scan, it's saying, oh, hi, Mr. Whoever Tom Cruise was playing. Yeah, yeah. And, and recommending products based on his uh, retina scan. It's, uh, yeah. I must, uh, I must recommend a book. I'll see can I find the link to it and put it into the notes. There's one called, um, it's called Inventing the Future. Right. Um, and it's actually a part of that series of books. There's like a series of like UX books. There's like UX and st- uh, storytelling in UX and a few other ones. Um, but it's, it's all about how, um, it, it's, it's like case studies on, future technology from movies and sci-fi mm. franchises. Sure. And there's some case studies in there about how they came into um, to affect real world, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah going yeah, back to the track when you, the, com- the communicator was obs- uh, obviously interested in... I'm, I'm losing the ability to speak <laughs> on air. <laughs> the, the, the communicator influenced the clamshell phone. Yep. But on Star Trek Next Generation, they had the pad, which is the P-A-D-D, right. which was a touchscreen pad. Oh, um, okay. Which, uh, I see where you're going with definitely, that. Definitely, <laughs> I think, influenced the, uh, the Steve Jobs of the world. In yeah. fact, if I remember correctly, Apple had wanted to call it the pad. Right. Um, and for whatever reason, there was some trademark, and I thought they had to call it the iPad. Hmm. So... <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I actually have a lot more examples, but I won't go into them now because it would just be talking about science fiction. We, we, should, we should do but an yeah. entire podcast on that. I think we My could. next one was going to be Back to the Future Part 2, but we won't go into that. <laughs> I think we could get easily another 45 minutes out of that subject. That's actually... Um, I sometimes struggle for subjects. That might be a good one yeah. to, uh, to bring up. Okay, excellent. Well, I think that's everything we have to cover. Yeah. Um, unless you have anything else you want to bring up. Uh, no, I, I don't think so. Let's save it for next time. We, do we not have anything to plug this week? Uh, hmm, do we have anything to plug? I don't think so. I think we're okay. I'll probably get a blog post at the moment, but no. uh, I don't know when that's coming out. Well, I mean, a general plug for the blog might not be bad. So, yeah. Yeah, there's always <laughs> stuff going up there if, if anyone wants to check it out. Um, but uh, until then, we'll, we'll be back uh, hopefully soon with another episode of the podcast. Um, I'm sorry this hasn't been as regular as it had been previously. As I said, it's been a busy period of time in the office, but we're going to try and get a few recorded um, so that we have regular content going forward. Um, but I think we'll just leave it there. Great. Cool. Thanks, Thanks. Tom.